Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? And you know how painful it is. Esavel helps your in-house team by taking cumbersome tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia Pacific from on and offboarding, procuring devices to real-time IT support and device management. With our state-of-the-art platform, gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place. Our team of IT support pros are keen to help you grow. So check out esevel.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code ASIA for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. The secondary effects from the SVB's or Silicon Valley Bank saga sent the circle stablecoin USDC depegging over the last weekend, but restored back to stability with the press release from the US Treasury, the US Federal Reserve and FDIC. So to help me with this second big event, which is essentially crypto and Web3 story, I have Cosmo Jiang from Nova River and host of the Liquid Podcast from Global Coin Research. Last but not least, full disclaimer, I'm a Web3 angel and retail crypto trader holding tokens in all shapes and sizes. The discussion here is for informational purpose and does not constitute as investment advice. Please do your own research and make up your own mind. So Cosmo, welcome back to the show in such a short notice. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bernard. It's been a crazy time and certainly a lot to talk about. Yeah, it's probably the most craziest week I have, given that the whole weekend I was having a calls with every startup, whether it's Web2, <laughs> Web3, or whatever. But I think let's go straight to the conversation. I think there were a few preceding events that led to the depegging of USDC. So I want to start off first by talking about the collapse of Silvergate Bank first, which is actually mm -hmm. the precursor before SVB started their own bank run. So why did Silvergate Bank collapse in the first place and what caused their bank run? Yeah, definitely. I think it's probably first helpful to talk about who Silvergate is and why it's so important. Silvergate's a California-based regional bank. They were a really early supporter of crypto-based businesses. And as an early entrant, it built a really strong brand. And it, along with SVB or Silicon Valley Bank, was one of the two most dominant banking providers in all of the crypto industry. It had over 1,600 crypto customers, which, which is a lot because we know there aren't that many crypto crypto businesses. Throughout 2022, as the markets, as the crypto markets and, and the broader markets collapsed, Silvergate's business, un, unsurprisingly, also suffered material setbacks. Its customers lost fun, or its customers lost money, and so they had fewer less money to deposit, and more customers were or more retail guys were pulling out of the industry. This was eventually enough to catalyze a loss of confidence, which is ultimately, you know, the key ingredient to any classic run on the bank. Just to put some numbers around it, you know, they had about $14 billion of crypto-related client deposits at the end of 2021. So pretty large bank. This had dropped to $12 billion at the end of third quarter 2022. So, you know, a little bit of decline, but not the end of the world. But with the FTX fallout, the deposit decline was across the industry was just massive. From it went from twelve billion billion dollars at the end of third quarter twenty twenty two to less than four billion at the end of twenty twenty two. So like within three months, you know, they lost over eight billion dollars or two thirds of their deposits. And as we all know, 
deposits are the lifeblood of any bank. And, you know, any fundamental bank analyst will tell you the quality and stickiness of deposits is what's incredibly important. And here we had a case where the quality and stickiness of deposits was highly concentrated in crypto. And unfortunately, the, the stickiness of crypto deposits is very low when crypto is falling apart. And so this deposit outflow resulted in, you know, a lot of concerns around Silvergate's business and the stock fell tremendously throughout 2022 and early and into 2023. That said, this really all catalyzed or really started to accelerate on March 1st when Silvergate failed to file its 10Q or, or, or it, it declared that it, it couldn't file its, its 10K because it had it it had a material drop in its regulatory capital ratios, which required below required levels. And and so it was starting to evaluate itself whether it could be a going concern or whether it could be even a business. You know, what had happened was basically with with all banks, you know, they they hold securities against deposits. And when customers withdraw deposits, they have to sell their securities to have enough liquidity to to fulfill those deposits. Well, one of the one of the shorts stop gaps that it had was it borrowed a lot of bet debt from a from a lender of last resort, which is that federal home loan bank, a US regulated entity to cover the deposit hole. But this is very short term debt. And so it had a ton of this debt at the end of the fourth quarter, deposits continue to come out in 2023. And then and in order to and as it tried to repay this debt, they ultimately were not able to without having its equity capital ratio fall below what's the regulatory requirement. Because when they're selling securities to satisfy these deposit outflows, they have to suffer. They they have to recognize losses. And happy to describe the mechanics of these mark-to-market yeah. losses if that's helpful. But ultimately, you know, it resulted in the the bank 10K file that people were they were worried about going concern. Everyone started running for the hills. And then by March 8th, it announced it was winding down and voluntary liquidating. Mm. And I think... I want to get into a little bit of the mechanics that you talk about, but I think one thing very similar to Silicon Valley Bank, but not I think the difference is in the mechanism. They both have falling deposits. They're dealing with a very concentrated risk with a very specific group, like for example, Silvergate's crypto and Silicon Valley Bank is like the startups. And what happens? Deposits falling. I think that's the first part, and then it's exacerbated by these kind of trades that they do. And specifically in Silvergate's case, which I find it really ironic is because they were just subjected to durational risk by buying mm -hmm. treasury bonds. Am I right to say Yeah, say that? this is the classic how oh my, it's like every blow up this year and last year has been a case of mismatch of asset duration and liability duration. And that's right. They, they hold what are supposedly extreme, I mean, and are like very safe US treasury bonds, but when yields move 400 basis points over a year, the mark to market on those bonds is, is pretty severe. If you hold them into maturity, no problem, but you have to sell them in a hurry, big problem. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to come to the real main subject is, can you first introduce how USDC or the Circle Stablecoin maintains its pack with the US dollar one-to-one? -one? Yeah, I guess as quick background, USDC, as we all know, is issued by Circle, which is a US-based company regulated as a money transmitter, has a money transmitter license from the government. It issues USDC, which is supposed to be fully, or it is, sorry, not supposed to be, it is fully backed by highly liquid reserves that are primarily cash in US treasuries. All right, These are held segregated from Circle's operating funds. Circle is very transparent about reporting it. It's segregated, it's like a... You know, as far as transparency goes, Circle issues actually a lot of transparency reports. They re self-report daily on total balances and reserves, issuances, redemptions. 
In addition, every month it publishes an audited by Deloitte monthly attestation with a granular balance sheet of exactly how much the reserves are, where they're sitting, and what securities they own, and, and against how much you know USDC is circulating. So that is how they sort of try to give confidence that all USDC is backed at least one to in fact, more than one to one, but at least one to one by reserves. So how, how does it maintain its as with most stable coins, the value of USDC is actually free floating, like, but market forces cause it to usually maintain its peg other than this last weekend. If USDC trades below $1, then anyone can redeem it for exactly a dollar just by going taking that USDC going to circle or Coinbase and saying, Hey, give me a dollar and you get to collect a spread if USDC trades above a dollar, which doesn't happen. But if it were to someone could just wire a dollar to USDC to circle or Coinbase tell them to make them a make them a USDC coin and then they sell it for more than a dollar and collect the spread. So it's really market forces that cause it to maintain its peg, but the market forces are driven by the confidence in you circles reporting about its financial reserves. Mm. So prior to emergency port review, I covered the saga of the Silicon Valley Bank and its impact on the startups and VCs in Asia Pacific with Shai Oster, the Asia Bureau Chief from the Information, who I think done a very good coverage across the board over the last weekend. So I think we're going to start with the assumption that everybody knows that story. So how did the Silicon Valley Bank run trigger the USDC depagging? Yeah, so Circle has $43 billion of reserves held for USDC and about $43 billion circulating. It's, it's, the Delta is about $100 million of extra excess reserves that they have. Um, as I as I mentioned, it says that it stores these segregated from its operating accounts, and it actually stores it in financial custodians and regulated regulated custodians of banks in the U.S. One of these banks is Silicon Valley Bank. It's one of the eight banks that it names in its monthly transparency report, so everyone knows that to be the case. Obviously, as Silicon Valley Bank started to go under, questions really began being asked on Thursday this past week. At first, the the quantity of deposits at Silicon Valley Bank wasn't totally clear because, like in in Circle's reports, they actually mentioned eight different banks that they store their deposits at. So you you don't really know. But but it was about, I think, about $8 billion of deposits at these eight different banks. So it could be a large number. The questions became much, much louder after Silicon Valley Bank went under FDIC receivership on Friday and stopped sending out wires. And then that Friday afternoon, Binance, as they often are, was the first exchange to stop accepting automatic USDC, USD conversions. And so you Binance customers could no longer peg out one-to-one. -one, and immediately, USDC dropped to $0.99. Cents. A few hours later that Friday evening, Circle disclosed that it, it, it had actually $3.3 billion of funds stuck on Silicon Valley Bank. So 3.3 out of $43 billion is obviously... Not a small amount, about 8% of, of its total reserves that was stuck. And Coinbase then stopped accepting USDC, USD conversions at one to one shortly thereafter. It attributes that to like the Fed wire system being closed on the weekend, which I believe and I accept. But, you know, panic ensues, free fall begins. And within the next few hours, USDC traded from 99 cents or even a dollar earlier that morning to as low as 88 cents in the very, very early hours of Friday evening US time. And that. Friday evening US time is Asia's morning afternoon yes. on Saturday. Okay, so it's probably the most exciting time for me during that weekend as a as an angel to a lot of Web three and crypto startups. But let's some share some more stories here. So it sent all the Web three crypto companies into a tailspin. The founders of portfolio of companies with USDC exposure started calling me for help. I think some of them were very smart. They preempted it and they make 
uh, they basically swap out their USDC to another stable coin to hold it for a while. Surprise, surprise that some of them, because they're based in Singapore, there's actually a Singapore stable coin they managed to allow them to maintain the pack mm-hmm. done by a private company called Xverse or Face Group, but they mm-hmm. were regulated by MAS or Monetary Authority of Singapore for those listening from all other parts of the world to 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 have a proper pegging of the that particular stable coin. So I think maybe before I talk about my war stories, what is the immediate impact on of the USDC on the rest of the crypto ecosystem? I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the impact is is tremendous, right? USDC has always been viewed as the gold standard for stable coins and almost no one except for the craziest outsiders thought it would falter, right? Tether which is the other large stablecoin was supposed to be one with the opaque balance sheet, like unclear management, unclear ownership. And funnily enough, we saw an immediate flight to safety of people swapping all their USDC for Tether and Tether traded above a dollar for, I mean, even now it's slightly trading above a dollar, which is which is wild. And the pricing of all assets went haywire. Almost everyone, because USDC is viewed as the gold standard, just hard codes in USDC as exactly a dollar in their DeFi applications, in their exchanges. And so, and a lot of price indices are based on USDC pairs, including Coinbase. And so immediately like prices started going haywire across different exchanges. Like ETH was trading for 1650 per, per was trading for 1650 on one exchange and like 1450 on another exchange to reflect the DPEG of, of USDC. And so there are these massive weird ARB opportunities that presented themselves if you were able to transfer your funds around, but chances are you weren't. And so it was just a, it was a truly a wild time. And a lot of things in DeFi started to, started to break. Um, there are, there are a couple hacks that came out that, that we found about about today related to borrow and lending application or not hacks, sorry, exploits related to the USDC depegging in DeFi applications. And obviously the, the crypto world or investor world went, went bananas because everyone was trying to figure out what to happen, how to manage risk. It really doesn't help that I, I guess to share my own war story, it does not help at all that these DPEGs, <laughs> I remember the last time I was on this podcast, we we talked about the UST Terra DPEG. It, these DPEGs always tend to happen on weekends, late night, <laughs> East Coast hours when like, I mean, not to say that, not to have too centric, US centric of a view, but most investment managers sit in New York or sit in the US and none of them are at work when these DPEGs happen. And so things go extra, liquidity is extremely low and things go extra haywire. And um and me personally, I was just up all night, you know, buying USDC as I was going down after doing the analysis to to figure out that I thought it was sound. But uh, it was it was definitely a a, st- a scary time. So you make eleven cents per every dollar that you purchased during that period. Of I, time, I didn't right? quite I didn't quite bottom tick everything. I, I think I was buying it at you know ninety four cents downwards, probably average of like ninety two cents. I I would just basically give a little bit of color on the startups that that with they have treasuries that are that holds a lot of USDC. When I say hold a lot means at least a six-digit figure going on. And at that point, the question in Asia Pacific and calls were everywhere, telegram channels are going crazy. Because I do a lot of crypto trading. So what I did was I just suggested them, okay, why don't you try to first convert into Ethereum BTC? Because I think that what is what is happening is that that when things are low trust like this period people will tend to flock towards the most decentralized currency. And even though there's, they will accept a little bit of the volatility, because one, one thing that came out, I, I don't know whether you realize this, but Bitcoin and Ethereum price were holding relatively well when USDC is depegging. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what 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 happened was that they just make the swap, and on Monday, which after the announcement, I think it's your evening in the U.S. time, and the FDIC, Federal Reserve, and Treasury announced the thing, and then the the pack the pack is starting to restore back, and then their Bitcoin and Ethereum price caused by the search of everybody making the swaps actually gone down. I just told them, okay, now swap it back. And they actually recovered all the all the 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 losses that's caused by the depegging and they go back to normal. It's like, okay, we got it lucky this round. So I, I actually got even found this messaging me as a good call. I was like, well, I was just thinking this is probably what's gonna happen because Bitcoin and Ethereum are pretty directional. But I think to me, is this being lucky after going through after three crypto winters? I don't know how do you see during that point in time what was actually happening in let's say crypto startups or VCs who are holding the USDC. Yeah, I mean, I I obviously man- actively manage a, a hedge fund at called Nova River, and and so closely watching where flows were going at this time and. It's a lot of startups and crypto funds did sell out of their USDC. Many of them did swap for USDT or Tether out of panic, which is unfortunate and, you know, realized losses. But look, I mean, I don't know a lot of people who did this, but the smart people, I guess, did exactly what you did, which is turns out buying USDC at 91 cents was nice, but buying ETH, <laughs> buying ETH instead was a much better trade. And so those who those who did that ended up doing a lot better. Yeah, I, I I think Bitcoin as well because Bitcoin was yes. I think around hovering around twenty one. I think based on our timing now, which is my fourteen of March early morning at five a.m. and still in your evening in the U.S. time, Bitcoin has just gone up to twenty four k for the first time. I think it's caused by all this depegging, and then because of these large inflows and outflows going on and off. That's why the 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 Bitcoin price is just like surging. Yeah, like I think I, I, well, it, it's hard to exactly procrast, pro- prognosticate yeah, what, right. what causes the prices, but for sure, the the strength in Bitcoin and ETH Friday night was due to people swapping out of USDC into Bitcoin and ETH, and then clearly the last couple of days, the surge, the the fifteen percentage surge in both both of those currencies was largely due to this 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 belief that the FDIC would come in and bail out, or not bail out, but the FDIC would figure out a way to resolve Silicon Valley's issues in, in an appropriate way. And that and that this would cause the Fed to have to really question whether they could keep tightening. And as we saw today in the markets, you know, rates collapsed in the market today, and and it was a it was a risk on day for sure. And so that drove the surge in in Bitcoin and Ethereum. Mm. I think let's get back to in time. So twelfth of March evening in U.S. time, six fifteen, U.S. Treasury, Federal Reserve, and FDIC basically guaranteeing the depositors that they would get their money back. So the pack went back to $1. And then they also announced the failure of Signature Bank in New York at the same time in that press release. I think this has been coming after the Silvergate uh, collapse as well. What do you think the Signature Bank's collapse will mean for crypto in the US? And then after that, percolate to the rest of the financial system. Yeah, I want to clarify something first, which is that, and I think this is important, is that Signature Bank didn't fail or collapse. It was actually solvent. The New York regulator chose to shut it down out of a qualitative risk assessment. And I think this is this is really important to point out because it's it's kind of a very specific shot at the crypto industry. Yes, there's probably like reason to believe that you know Signature does have does have large exposure to crypto. It's the largest bank within the crypto industry, but 
it's it had it's a very large business outside of crypto too and so the new york regulator and and it you know it's capital ratios even with very reasonable markdowns seemed okay and and so the new york regulator i think was making a very clear uh point of making an example out of signature or or either making a point of making an example out of signature or more generously just trying to get it had it in case something bad happened but Signature actually is totally solvent or was solvent when it was shut down. But that said, what's what's the impact? The impact is pretty meaningful. I, I you know, the Signature and, and and Silvergate are basically bank 80, 85% of the crypto industry in the US. And so everyone that I've talked to is scrambling to find a new banking provider. I, I've I thankfully I my fund does not use Signature or, or Silvergate, so we're okay. But I've been referring a lot of people to my bank, which is Customers Bank, as well as a number of other banks that still do bank crypto companies. But for the next couple of weeks, a lot of a lot of crypto companies don't have a bank, which is which is scary. Um, and so that means that you know the availability of credit and liquidity will definitely be lower going forward. Signature and 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 Silvergate both operated their own digital, their own basically stablecoin transfer networks that operated that were like Fedwire, except free and and accessible 24/7 and so that really facilitated liquidity flows across different different exchanges both of those are shut down and gone so it'll be very hard to get money or not hard, very hard but much harder now to transfer money in between exchanges especially on weekends which could cause which could cause freaky weekend pricey activity and uh, and yeah and so a lot of people are now struggling to find new banking providers liquidity will be tight and of credit will be a lot tighter for the crypto industry Mm. Do you think that the U.S. crypto scene will end up a little bit like China, where there's no more trading activity, but because it's going to move out, the outflows are going to go to either Europe or Asia Pacific, and I think a lot of those freaky freaky activities are coming from Asia because the trading volume is extremely high in the Asia Pacific region. Yeah, I have a strong feeling that, or and I have strong hopes that U.S. regulators and lawmakers will do the right thing in creating a good regulatory environment for crypto companies in the U.S. I don't think it's within the U.S.'s national interest or growth interest to let crypto go offshores. Clearly, we've seen that that's uh, non-regulated crypto companies is what caused a lot of issues in the crypto industry, and so it's it's important that they are regulated and and sort of stay onshore because. U.S. customers will figure out a way to trade, even if even if it's not through U.S. exchanges. So let's let's let them do it on in the U.S. in a regulated, safe way. And so, I I I am hopeful that that will not happen. But you know the 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 that's yet to be seen, or the story's yet to be written whether or not Chris can come together and come up with a a good regulatory plan for for the crypto industry in the U.S. Mm. So if I were to give ask you now, what would be your advice? And it's just more from a perspective angle and not really giving actual advice, but to maybe Web3 startups globally in the ecosystem, what do they have to watch out for? Yeah, I mean, we've already started to hear this. I have two thoughts. One is on where do you set up and, and sort of how do you think about innovation? And then two is how do you think about treasury management? Maybe just on the on the first part, where where do companies set up? We're already starting to see a lot of a lot of crypto founders decide that it's just not worth it, who are based in the US decide that it's just not worth it that the regulatory and clarity is not worth it and they either need to shut down or move abroad which is very sad for the US and a lot of a lot of investors are being more uh more eager to deploy capital towards towards foreign based or non US based teams and 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 defi protocols are setting up outside of the US to avoid this regulatory opacity and and unclarity in the US which is 
again, all very unfortunate for the U.S., although good for the rest of the world, good for the rest of the world short term, not long term. If the U.S. doesn't accept crypto long term, then you know we're not going anywhere. But then on the treasury management front, the second point, I think it's tricky. I I remain a USDC maxi, but I could see the argument going both ways. I, 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 like clearly USDC relies on centralized third parties. This case study showed the fragility of the US banking system, which the USDC relies on as well, but also the fortitude and, and resolve of the US government in backing that. So that's good. But but you do rely on the US on, on the US government. And so and so I can see why it makes sense to diversify your treasury. It always makes sense to diversify your treasury, but I tend to trust USDC the most. The other ways you can diversify your treasury, though, is by owning Tether or by owning decentralized alternatives, which might make sense, like Frax or Liquidity, which which issues LUSD, both of which you know I'm I'm definitely very supportive of. So mm. I could definitely see it go both ways. Mm. I I actually kind of disagree on the piece about the US. I think when they took over, becoming more crypto is coming back to the US in the last two three years. It kind of zapped off all the innovation coming from the rest of the world. Being US heavily stop the system actually benefits the rest of the world in actually building a different financial system that's out of the US dollar. I don't know whether how you think about it, but if you think about the emerging markets where actual crypto is really having actual applications, and that's where they really need it versus the US dollar. I think there is actually things to be said that maybe this may be the only way to decouple and letting decentralized cryptocurrencies actually being decentralized rather than being centralized either towards maybe to one side of the world or the other side of the world, but remain some form of medium of exchange that the rest of the world will not be held hostage to. I think that's a really that's a really fair point and a good point. I, I do think it is important that cryptocurrency remains decentralized and that development, innovation, and ownership remains globally decentralized. And I agree that the, the use case for for crypto as as a as a form means of exchange certainly is is way more important in, in outside of the US than it is in the US. So all that is very good. I do think for and this is maybe my my US centric view, and so I I pre apologize for that. But I, I do think it is. It, if the U.S. government can come cannot come to terms with an acceptable regulatory framework for crypto, it I find it very hard to believe crypto can survive without the support of you know a, a major economy, or maybe not the explicit support, but at least implicit support of a, of a major economy. Mm. I cannot leave this conversation without asking you this last question: What's your perspective on the? Genesis bankruptcy because I got you the last time on the show to talk about it and DCG's final settlement with Gemini and the other creditors on Genesis, the fallout from Genesis. Yeah, yeah. I remember last time when we spoke, we were sort of in the meat of it and it wasn't really clear what the resolution would be. But now but now it is it is more clear, although not totally clear yet. You know, Gen Genesis and DCG, as of about a little over a month ago, came to an agreement on an initial restructuring plan. So they finally came came to the table, talked it out. Genesis is winding down its loan book, selling both its Genesis entities. They're, you know, DCG's refinance or DCG and Genesis are re refinancing their outstanding loans. They're, the creditors at Genesis, which include Gemini as well as others, are getting actually, you know, are, are getting convertible warrants and convertible equity so that 
they're, you know, they're getting at least 80 cents on the dollar immediate base recovery and then upside from thereafter from from any equity upside that there is remaining in the gem in the Genesis business. And and Gemini's is is contributing, you know, $100 million to help fill out whatever hole there is remaining to to Gemini earn customers. And so fortunately, the the big boys in the, in this in this situation took their lumps and and both, you know, absorbed some losses with DCG give, really giving up some equity and and Gen Gemini coughing up some cash to make sure that their customers remain whole. I think one open question is whether that the ongoing DOJ and SEC investigations into the DCG will throw a wrench into these restructuring plans. Like because they've come to a restructuring plan, there isn't really a there really isn't an aggrieved counterparty anymore. Like there, there's no there's no issues anymore other than like there are potentially some laws broken and how how DCG structured its intercompany loans with Genesis and in particular how they conveyed that to their borrowing and lending counterparties and whether their accounting was correct or whether their accounting was was valid and so and so if the SEC and DOJ really wants to make a point out of it they definitely could but there are no there's sort of no one in the loss anymore but but they could definitely make an example out of still make an example out of DCG and that may throw a wrench into the restructuring plans one of the really interesting stories that went past the last week but thanks to all the whole we and craze caused by Silicon Valley Bank, was that the Grayscale lawsuit with the SEC on the GBDC. And I think that it seems that when the opening statements are made and the initial, it seems that it's, it favors GBDC, but we will have to wait and see what's going, whether it's going to be converted into a spot ETF anytime soon. Yeah, that whole situation is very interesting because at least to me, it's very clear that DCG does not want the grayscale ETF to go through as much as they they claim they do because it's it's enterprise value dilutive if if the ETF application goes through they obviously have to argue in favor of the ETF application otherwise they get sued by their customers but it's clearly you, enterprise you know, value negative I, I'm I'm beginning to 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 have a different point of view after hearing the CEO on on the different podcasts across the crypto ecosystem I think they would rather get the ETF with the viewpoint that the market becomes bigger rather yeah. than having this, you know, 300, 400 of management fees, but with a smaller market, because I think they would want the institutions to come in to actually expand the GBDC ownership. That may be the reason why they are, they are really going ahead. The, the game theory of it seems to suggest to me that they are moving towards that, that direction. Right, right. I guess my my addendum to that is that I do think their willingness to argue more more in favor of the ETF application is that they actually they sold some of their equity to Gemini effectively, right? So now <laughs> so now they're kind of off the hook. Like they're somewhat off the hook in the sense that they they share the downside if there is any downside with Gemini now and so they're more okay with with <laughs> with the ETF going through. But I, I hear that point too if like if fees on the ETF need to drop by call it like two thirds, but they can 3x the size of the fund, then they come out even. Yeah, so I think it, it, it will still end up doing going well for Grayscale. So Cosmo, many thanks for coming for this emergency podcast. And seriously, we're going to have a lot more to discuss given this few crazy weeks that have happened. So where can my audience find you? Yeah, absolutely. You, you can find me on, on LinkedIn or Twitter. My name is Cosmo Jiang, J-I-A-N-G. And you can also hear more of what of my interviews with other Liquid managers on the Liquid podcast available on all podcasting platforms. Mm -hmm. Find, of course, Analyze Asia on YouTube and also on our podcast feeds and obviously get our newsletter where we do a monthly salary. So Cosmo, many thanks for coming on the show and I look forward to speak to you soon. 
Yeah, thanks, Bernard. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me and take care.